verse 14 to the end. Let me just say by way of introduction and reminder that chapter 14 is the end of that fourth of seven cycles which describe the time between Jesus' first and second comings. The fourth cycle is chapters 12 to 14. In chapter 12, we have a dragon that chases the male child, is unsuccessful in devouring him, and thus goes after the woman and her offspring. That's the church. In chapter 13, we find how she does that, and or how the dragon does that, and that's through the... Uh, two instruments of the dragon, the first and second beasts. And now in chapter 14, we find uh, a description of the church in the beginning part of it, and then a description of heaven and hell through the latter part of this chapter. And we come tonight to the third part of chapter 14, verse 14 to the end. And as I read through this uh, section, let's look at it together under the headings that Dr. Beeky has suggested in his exposition of this passage. The harvester, we'll see that in verse 14. The helpers, we'll see that in the next section. And then the last is the harvest. And there's some overlap there in the verses. But we'll find a harvester, that's Jesus. The helpers, that's the angels. And then the harvest, that's all mankind. Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of, his, out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came up uh, out of the winepress, up to the horses' bridles, for 1,600 furlongs. Joe Beakey said this in his introduction to this passage, Revelation 14 Verses 14 to 20 is the final scene in the fourth cycle of visions. It's a close-up description of what will happen at the end of time when Christ comes again from heaven to judge the living and the dead. It describes the final day as a great harvest, wherein Christ will return as the reaper to reap his reward. And as I've suggested, I think the best way to look at it, or one good way to look at it, is the outline suggested by Dr. Beakey. And the first of those three heads is the harvester, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Now I trust, brethren, that it's rather evident that this is a description of Jesus himself. 
In fact, it's borrowed from, as we've seen over and again, Daniel 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Verse 14 adds two things. A golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now these might seem odd combinations. Most kings have a scepter in their hands, not a sharp sickle. A sickle, of course, being an instrument or tool used to cut crops. Now the golden crown is actually a golden wreath. There's two Greek words that's typically translated crown. The one refers to a diadem and royalty. The other one to a wreath and victory. Now, Jesus wears both. He is royalty, but he's also a victor. And this is really the imagery that's here in our text. Robert Mount said, The golden wreath designates the Messiah as one who has conquered and thereby won the right to act in judgment. He's described here as a victor. The sharp sickle is the instrument of harvest and portrays the Son of Man prepared to reap the harvest of earth in righteous retribution. Now he's said to be on a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Now, clouds in the Bible, through the Old Testament and the New Testament, are often attached to Jesus' second coming. And it really underscores his divine glory and grandeur. In fact, Dr. Beeky has a very helpful little section, I won't read all of it, where he talks about, he gives a little brief biblical theology of clouds. Let me just read a little bit as a sample. This cloud is the same cloud that filled the temple in the days of Solomon. It's the same cloud that people saw leaving the temple when the glory departed Israel. It's the cloud that enveloped Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the cloud into which he was received when he ascended from the Mount of Olives. It's the Shekinah cloud, the cloud of God's glory. Then he goes on to say, this cloud then is his royal chariot. Christ is coming again, and he's coming with all the power and glory of God. This is the idea here. When Christ comes, comes back, he's going to come back glorious. That's the idea. He is not coming as the humble carpenter, despised and rejected of men, but seated on a cloud of glory, vested with all the power and insignia of his high office as the one ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and dead. That is what John here sees. And so we have a glorious description of Christ coming back as the Son of Man and the victorious one and the judge of heaven and earth. He's the harvester or the reaper. Notice, secondly, the helpers. The helpers of the harvester are angels, and there's at least three angels mentioned in this passage in verse 15, 17, and 18. Throughout the Gospels, you might know, our Savior made constant reference to the angels assisting him when he returns to earth. And let me, for example, just very quickly take you through Matthew's Gospel and just show you uh, just 
four or five places where you have this. Look, start, uh, start with me in chapter 13. Matthew 13, 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. Okay, We're going to see that angels <clears throat> assist Jesus in the reaping. Right, That's why I've called them the helpers to the reaper or to the harvester. Or else, go a little bit further, chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father. See, that's the idea of the cloud. And with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. And then a little bit further, chapter 24. Verse 31, then the, uh, verse 31, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. Now just keep in mind, I didn't point this out, but in some of the texts we've already read, we see that the angels assist the reaper, the harvester, Christ, both with regards to the just and the unjust, right? Here they're described as gathering the elect, we're going to see that that's found back in, in Revelation 14, as well as the non-elect, saved and unsaved, right? Just one more uh, example, chapter 25 and 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that is on the clouds, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And then you have him separating in verse 32. Um, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And then it goes on to describe the sheep and the goats. And we're going to see that that's the order when Christ comes back. He first of all snatches up his sheep, his elect, and then he burns the rest or he judges the rest. That's the order of uh, Revelation 14. We're going to see he comes and he harvests his people, and then he tramples upon his enemies. That's the order everywhere in the, in the Bible, brethren. And it's the order in Revelation 14. And so we find that the angels are the assisters or the helpers to Christ. The first came from the temple and speaks to Christ. The second came from the temple with a sharp sickle. And the third came out of the altar, which was in the temple, and also has a sharp sickle. And so Christ has a sharp sickle, and the angels have sharp sickles, and the reason being is that they are helpers of Christ. Okay, so Christ is the reaper, he's the harvester, they're merely the helpers. And we see that, don't we, in his teaching in the Gospels. And so we find first a harvester, that's Christ, the helpers, the angels, and then now we come thirdly to the harvest. Now, if you look back in Revelation 14, you may not see this at first, but the harvest that's described is actually twofold. Verses 15 and 16 describe a grain harvest, and verses 17 and 18, a grape harvest. Grain and grapes, these are the two different harvests. Now, admittedly, this isn't as clear in our English text. The word translated ripe in verse 15 
means dry and it refers to grain or to wheat that's ready for harvest. And the one that's translated in, in 17 and 18 describes a grape harvest. Okay, And again, that may not come out uh, in our English text, but it's there in the Greek text. And, and furthermore, it's found back in the text that he's quoting from in Joel 3. Uh, I, I think we'll have time here in a minute to turn to Joel 3, but you'll see it's very clear in Joel 3 that there's a twofold harvest. Grain and grapes. Grain and grapes. Now, the grain is the elect, and the grapes, the non-elect. Now, we didn't read all of the passage that, that we, I turned it to. Uh, I just read a little part of those texts in the Gospels. But if we would have read those texts more fully, you would see, and I think you know, that that's the order. That Jesus comes back, he snatches up his bride or his harvest, and then he burns the chaff or he tramples upon the grapes. He comes and he snatches up his people from the earth, and then he destroys it, right? And then he comes back to the earth with his beloved people. So the order is always, first the elect, he gathers the elect into his barn, into his, into his barns as his harvest. And then he tramples, he tramples the grapes outside the city gates. Okay, we're going to see those in turn. The first harvest, the grain harvest, concerns believers. Just keep this in mind because it may get a little confusing here in a moment. The first harvest, the grain harvest in 15 and 16, concerns believers. And the second in 17 and following, the grape harvest, and that's unbelievers. Okay. Now let's go through them in turn, and I'll show you some of that. Now, in first, the harvest of grain, the harvest of grain. Earlier in verse 4, God's people were described as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And now John picks back up that imagery where the first fruits were the harvest. Here in verses 15 and 16, they're again described as a harvest that's reaped at Christ's second coming. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Now go back again in your mind to some of those texts in the Gospels that we read. He sends out his helpers, the angels, and they gather, they gather into his barns, his elect that are scattered across the four corners of this world. This is the harvest. Now, admittedly here, it doesn't sound all that exciting. It just simply says he comes, he sits, he's sitting on a cloud and he thrusts, verse 16, in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. But just let your mind go a little bit and be filled with the rest of the scriptures. This is a glorious harvest, brethren. This is the one who planted, this is the one who planted the harvest, and now he's going to reap it. He planted us in the soil of his grace, right? He took us out of the, he took us out of the field, and he planted us by his grace, in his, in, his, in his field, and there in that field we grew and we bore fruit. And now all of God's people, the last elect, is saved and the harvest has come. And Christ comes down to earth glorious as the harvester, as the reaper to reap his reward. Brethren, it's, it's the same 
uh, this harvest is one and the same with the 144,000 mentioned back in verse 1. The last elect sinner has been saved. The harvest of God's people is complete. And so Christ comes back when the last sinner is saved or when his harvest is ready. And then, but the emphasis here is more on, isn't it, the harvest of grapes. Now you might know grapes grow in clusters which are cut down by a sharp sickle. And these clusters of grapes that are cut down by the sharp sickle are illustrative of the unsaved. They're symbolic of the unsaved. That they are fully right means they're fully ready for judgment. Their sin is complete. Their judgment now has come. The last elect has been saved. Christ's harvest is ready. It's ripe or it's dry. It's ready for harvest. And the grapes too are fully ripe and they too are ready for harvest now that they're fully ripe simply means they're fully ready for judgment verse 19 so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of god now ordinarily clusters of grapes were cut from the vines and thrown into a winepress to be trampled and crushed in this case, because we're talking about sinners, not grapes, they are trampled in the winepress of God's wrath. We're told this is outside the city, which refers to the city of Jerusalem, the place of God's gracious presence. Again, this is figurative language. Here the city is a reference to God's people. It's a reference to heaven and the wicked are trampled outside the gates. That simply means, brethren, that they don't go to heaven. Now, John picks up on this imagery in a few places. Let me turn you there very quickly and then go back to the source of the imagery in Joel 2. Look at the last few chapters of Revelation. Chapter 21, verse 27, where you find the same thing said just differently. And they shall bring the glory, verse 26, and the honor of the nations into it. What's the it? It's the city. The new Jerusalem. Verse 27. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here the wicked are banished from the city. There's no more wickedness in this city. This city is the new heavens and the new earth. Right? This is heaven. And only those who are saved are inside of it, and the wicked are outside of it. There shall by no means enter it anything that defiles. Now in chapter 14, it's not so much that they're banished, but that they're trodden, right? They're grapes. But nevertheless, the imagery is the same, or the teaching is the same, though the imagery is a little different. And then in the next chapter, verse 14, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Brother, this is just beautiful imagery to say that, that, this is the, the, that this city is only for those who are Christians. 
those who do his commandments. They don't go there because they do his commandments, but they don't go there without doing his commandments. They go there because Jesus did the commandments and he gives us grace and not perfectly, but sincerely do likewise. And then he blends together imageries. There's the city, but then he also likens it to paradise recovered or restored because there's a tree of life. Remember when man was banished because of his sin from the garden? Well, it's in Jesus that we have access back into the garden. And that garden here is, the imagery of the garden is here overlap with the imagery of the city. And that's verse 15. But outside are dogs. It is outside the city. And sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. And whoever loves and practices a lie. So we find back in chapter 14 that the grapes... uh, are, uh, are trodden, verse 20, trampled outside the city. Trampled outside the city. This simply means that they don't go to heaven, but hell. Now, let me quickly just turn you back to the text where uh, a lot of this imagery is taken, and that's Joel 3. Joel chapter 3. If you find Hosea, Joel's the next book, chapter 3. And uh, for the sake of time, we're just uh, breaking at verse 12. Let the nation be wakened and come, up, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Okay, it's a, the context here is judgment, but we're going to see the judgment is twofold. There's judgment upon the wicked and the righteous. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. That's talking about a grain harvest. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. That's grape, a grape harvest. This is where John gets that kind of dual imagery, right? And then verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. By the way, this, isn't a, this is not an evangelistic appeal to make a decision for Jesus. This is God's decision in judging the world. Okay, God is the one that makes the decision here, not sinners. The sun and moon will go dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will roar from Zion. See, now notice the city. He, he dwells in the city and the wicked are outside the city. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of his children uh, the children of Israel. So here we find again the, the similar imagery of a city that's being protected and those who are ousted from the city. Verse 17, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no alien shall ever pass through her again. It just means to say that the earth will be populated only by the righteous. Now the earth is populated by the righteous and unrighteous. To use the imagery of the Gospels, the harvest, there's the wheat and the chaff, right? The wheat and the chaff. But the wheat's going to be gathered into the barns and what happens to the chaff? Is burned or trampled. Or ousted from the city, banished from God, outside the city, outside of the presence of his grace 
and his mercy. Remember we saw this, I think, some time ago. I can't remember in what connection. That hell is described variously. I think it was last Wednesday I said this. Sometimes it's described as being separated from God. Hell is described like that in the Bible. But at other times it's described as being in the presence of a wrathful God. Remember last week they're, they're punished in the presence of the Lamb. So they're banished from his city. That is, they're banished from his gracious presence. But tragedy of all tragedies, they're not banished from God in every sense. They're banished from his gracious presence, but they reside in his wrathful presence forever. So we go back to Revelation 14 in verse 20. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, brethren, obviously this is figurative imagery. Because now the imagery has switched from grape juice or wine to blood. And there's so much blood that it makes up approximately a a 200-mile lake that's several feet deep, enough that a horse can swim in it. Now, that's a lot of blood. And it's figurative imagery or language. And it just underscores the nature, the devastating, terrible nature of the judgments of God upon the wicked. It doesn't mean that he literally stomps on them. I don't believe that's... But he does punish them and punishes them justly. And so we find that the coming of our Savior will be in glory and it will concern both the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous are likened to the harvest of grain and the unrighteous to the harvest of grapes. Now that brings me then to summarize the text with a couple observations. Three, in fact. And notice the first. The day of judgment is a vindication. The day of judgment is a vindication. Both the harvest of the righteous and the trampling of the wicked are in fulfillment are in fulfillment to the petitions of the, of the saints. Now you might ask the question, and it would be a good one, where are the petitions of the saints in this text? And I, want to, and I suggest to you that they're illustrated or represented in the petitions of the angels. If you notice, if you notice both with regards to the harvest of the righteous and the wicked, both the harvest of the righteous and the wicked are in fulfillment to the prayers or petitions of the angels. In fact, that's why some commentators, a few at least, uh, disbelieve that uh, the harvester or the reaper in verse 14 is Jesus. Because they say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus be told what to do by the angels? Because the angels are telling him that it's time for the harvest. They Verse 15, one angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Brother, the him who sat on the cloud is Jesus. 
But watch what the angel says. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come. Now that's what I suggest is the harvest of the righteous, but you have the same thing with regards to the harvest of the wicked in 18. Another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Well, the fact that the angels are coming from the altar means, one, that they're in the very immediate presence of God, and to remember that's where our prayers go, according to different verses previously seen in the Revelation, and that's where the perfected saints are before the altar, and guess what the perfected saints before the altar are doing? They're praising and they're praying. They're praising the Lamb that's worthy. And you know what they're praying? Well, they're praying the same thing, the exact same thing that these angels petitioned the one on the cloud to do. Revelation 6.10, and they they cried with a loud voice. If you take Revelation 6.10 and compare it to Revelation 14, 15, and 18, you're going to find out that these are basically the same petitions. And and, and Revelation 6.10 is talking about Christians who've died in Jesus and they're now before the throne. And they cried with a loud voice saying, what is it that they're going to say in part? What are they saying in part right now in heaven? How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on this earth? They're asking Christ to come back and to harvest his elect and to trample his enemies. They're asking Christ to do the very same thing, things that the angels are asking him to do in Revelation 14. Now, brethren, it's very difficult for us to enter into this prayer. Because we're very far from perfect as they are. But stop and think for a second. This prayer in Revelation 6.10 is uttered by, a, by perfect saints. Perfectly holy saints. Perfectly holy saints long for Jesus to come back and vindicate them. And it's not so much about them being vindicated, though that's how it's put, but it's in their vindication, Jesus is vindicated. And so they long for Jesus to come back as the reaper and to harvest his elect. I mean, I have to be honest. A part of me would say, I can pray that. Lord Jesus, come back and harvest your elect. Deliver them from their enemies, from their suffering, from their hardships. But brother, that's not all they prayed. And trample your enemies. That's what they pray for. And it's when we really enter into the spirit of Christ. And we think rightly, we can then in some sense or another. Pray similar prayers. These are the prayers that our brethren pray before the throne even now.
that Jesus would come back as the reaper, as the harvester, and harvest his elect and trample his enemies. First of all, the day of judgment is a vindication. Secondly, it's a motivation. By this I mean it's a motivation for Christians and non-Christians. It ought to be a motivation for all of us tonight. All of history is heading toward a day. Now, um, I'm trying to think. This morning in our Bible reading, we read the first chapter of Zephaniah. Now, if you took time and, and, and in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, you'll find that, it's, that they speak regularly about a day, right? The day of the Lord. And back in that uh, first chapter of Zephaniah, it actually speaks of the day of the Lord like this, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. Now, if you read that chapter, you'll know, or you ought to know, that the day reference was the destruction of uh, Jerusalem by the Babylonians. But that was shadowy of the destruction of the world at Jesus' second coming. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. And it goes on to speak about it as a day of destruction and devastation and darkness. Brethren, what a, what a terrible day it will be, but it's also a day of salvation. It's also a day of jubilant, joyful celebration. Because remember, our text speaks of a twofold harvest. Jesus is coming back as the great reaper, and he's going to harvest his people. His angels are going to be sent. His helpers are going to be sent into the four corners of the world, and they're going to gather all of his elect to him, and then he's going to destroy the world. So it's, an, it's a motivation for us to pray for and anticipate that day, and it's a motivation for non-Christians to become Christians. This is a single day that will be both terrible for God's enemies and glorious for his people. And so stop and think about it, brethren. Yes, we do believe that our religion ought to impact the way we live right here and now. We get that. That's a caricature that people sometimes level against you, people who believe in a day of judgment in a heaven and a hell. You're, you're, you're living your life thinking about that, and it does little to impact the here and now. Well, that's possible, but I, brethren, it's just not very likely. If we really believe that there is coming a day of judgment, and there is a heaven and a hell, then of necessity that ought to impact the way we live now. We are living, brethren, we are living for God now and we are to rightfully enjoy the lawful things of this world and we are to be busy sharing the gospel to others and we are to be dutiful and fulfill our specific responsibilities and callings. But brethren, we always have an eye to that day. We live for that day to see our beloved Savior face to face. The reapers returning, brethren. The reapers returning. And we're anticipating it. And we're, and we're, and we're longing and loving that day. And for those of us tonight who aren't Christians, what a motivation for us to consider that this 
isn't that day yet. This isn't the day of judgment. But what day does the Bible call this? The day of salvation. Brethren, there's a sense in which there's two days. There's the day of salvation, which is now up until Jesus' second coming. And then there's that day. And this day will go until that day comes. And until that day comes, this day is a day of salvation. And that's in part why we're here tonight. That's in part why you're here tonight, sinner friend. Because God came you, God brought you here to hear that this is the day of salvation. And he has in Christ provided a way for sinners to be reconciled to him. By looking to the one who bore their sins and bore their iniquity, perhaps we can put it like this, was trampled beneath the feet of God's justice on the cross for you. Right? Because the wicked are going to be trampled beneath the feet of Jesus. And there's a sense in which we can say, I trust with, with proper respect that Christ himself was tossed into the winepress of the wrath of God and for those hours on the cross was trampled justly as he bore the sins of the world. Or I can put it like this. Simply put, Someone will be trampled for your sins. And this text describes those who will be trampled for their own sins. But friend, you don't have to be trampled for your sins if you look to the one who was previously trampled in your place. The day of judgment is a motivation. And then finally, the day of judgment is a revelation. And a revelation in many ways. But I'm thinking in specific of the fact that it's a revelation of the character of Christ. Christ's love and Christ's wrath are both evident in this text. And they will both be made evident publicly in that day. That day will evidence his love and his wrath. His love in the harvest of his people. His wrath in the trampling of of his enemies. Do you know there's a lot of professing Christians who might come to a text like this in Revelation 14 and read about uh, this Son of Man who's going to come back all glorious and powerful and how sinners will be thrown into the winepress of his wrath and trampled beneath his feet outside the city for all eternity. And they might say, you know what? That Jesus isn't the Jesus that I love. I love the Jesus who loves the little children. And brother, I love that Jesus too. But the Jesus that loves the little children is the one and same Jesus who will himself trample the wicked in the winepress of God's wrath outside the city for all eternity. Now, I I mentioned that uh, behind this text is that uh, Joel 3 text, but there's a few other ones. There's Daniel 7. Remember, the book of Revelation is, as it were, built built on the back of the Old Testament 
prophets. Uh, Daniel 7 is in the text. Joel 3 is in the text. Many other texts. But there's one last one that I want to turn to in closing. And that's Isaiah 63. And notice Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then the question is asked him, verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Verse 3, he answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. Now you might know that wine presses, there were multiple people in there trampling the, the grapes. But in this wine press, there's only one person trampling the grapes. That's why he says, I have trodden the wine press alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. Friends, this is a description of the Jesus that we love. Now watch verse 14, or verse 4. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. See, there's two harvests. Now here the wicked is put before the righteous, but they're both here. When he comes back, he will destroy his enemies. He will trample his enemies alone. And yet he will redeem his beloved bride. There's the harvest of the grain and the harvest of the grapes. Look at verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered, and there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples, verse 6, in my anger. Now watch what's going to happen. We're going to see that John, remember last week John spoke of, the wicked as drinking the wine of his indignation. Right? That was last week. Now watch how they're blend together. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. And then he says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. And then he goes on to speak about the goodness of God towards his elect people and saving them. You say, well, which Jesus do we have? Do we have the Jesus who redeems people and is filled with loving kindness and has nothing but love and and grace and mercy toward his people? Or is it the one that has in his heart vengeance and wrath and anger towards his enemies? Well, my friends, there's the problem. If we have to choose, then we've chosen wrongly. Because rightly understood, it's neither one or the other, it's both. Jesus comes back, vengeance is in his heart, and he comes back because of love to redeem his people. He harvests them, he gathers them to himself, and then he also tramples his enemies beneath his feet, alone, outside of the city, for all eternity. He's the, he's the light for the city. We, we, we would have seen that back in chapter 21, a little earlier. It said that this city has no need for a light because the Lamb is its light. He's illuminating heaven, the city, for all eternity. And at the very same time, he's trampling his enemies beneath his feet outside the city gates. And thus, the day of, the day of judgment is 
a day of vindication. It's a motivation. And it's also a revelation of the loving and just character of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, with that, we'll have to close and transition to our hymn and then our time of prayer. So let's stand together and sing hymn 241.